season one of Written in Stone, the 1990s is supported by Tension Climbing, wooden training tools designed with purpose in Denver, Colorado. Use the code STONE, that's S-T-O-N-E, to get 10% off of your next purchase at tensionclimbing.com and to let them know that their support for this show matters. Not valid for tension board sets, hardware, or gift cards. Cannot be combined with other offers. Tensionclimbing.com. Mastery over success. Written in Stone is co-created by Power Company Climbing products, training plans, and education to help you become a better climber. PowerCompanyClimbing.com. Use the code STONE, that's S-T-O-N-E, for 20% off of almost everything. Learn. Grow. Excel. Two thousand nine. Conditions weren't great. Too warm, too still, too slippery. And the route was just too hard. But he'd made a pact. A pact with himself that every time he was here, he would tie in, shoe up, and try. Maybe learn, maybe try hard, maybe even get close. Or maybe just fall off. Again. made the pact because the route wasn't his style at all, and it was the elephant at the crag, the one he'd avoided. He'd climbed harder graded things, and failing on this might mean his other ascents, his resume might be called into question. He made the pact so he'd stop avoiding it, and for the most part, he honored that pact. Surprisingly, he had started to get comfortable up there on the finicky underclings and greasy feet and powerful, stretchy moves. He'd started to enjoy it, looking forward to learning more of the nuances of its character, to showing it more of his character. And then, one day, the rock felt like Velcro. The choreography was wired, and the route was allowing his passage. Until it wasn't. And then it got hot. Summer had teased him with possibility, only to snatch it away at the last second. And as it often does when given a window, life happened. Less time, more responsibilities pulled in other directions. But friends occasionally still called, and he occasionally still went. But this day, conditions weren't great. Too warm, too still, too slippery, and the route was just too hard. But he'd made a pact. And so he sat down beneath the overlapping tiered roofs of Hubble, tied in, shooed up, and set off. He made the first full extension reach to the bottom of the famous pinch, not quite getting to the good part because at five foot six, he just couldn't. However, Through all of those earlier conversations, he'd found a way to make it work. And he got the undercling just right. Feet smeared up above the overlap exactly like they always did, but this time, they stayed put. He came into the hard-to-hit undercling pocket that for some reason today wasn't so hard to hit. 
where he was normally off, he was still on. And where he might second guess, he knew, he understood. And then Steve McClure was through it, through the hardest sequence of moves he'd ever done and blasting off into orbit. Steve, welcome to Written in Stone. I'm I'm glad you're here, man. Me too. Good to, good to be with you, man. Yeah. Uh, first off, I apologize for my voice. My my daughter's sickness finally caught up with me. I've been avoiding it all I could, but it finally caught up. So luckily, you're the one doing all the talking here. All right. Okay. Right. Well, uh, just leave me in, and I'll set off. <laughs> well, before we get started, I have a question for you, and I asked Buster Martin a a similar question, but I'm curious to know your answer. Uh, if you had to choose between punk rock, dreadlocks, and living on the dole, or striped lycra, a long wavy mane, and being Sylvester Stallone's stunt double, which do you choose? Oh man, I'd go for the first one because that's what it was all about. <laughs> <laughs> which, which one did Buster go for? Buster went for the same, yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. No, Buster's that kind of dude as well. Yeah, he's that, he's that kind of dude. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, I recently read your book, Beyond Limits, and it's been my favorite of all the biographies that I've read while researching this project. And oh, that's impressive. Unless you've only read one. <laughs> no, I've read a lot. I've been reading uh, as much as possible for the last few months, rereading oh, things. Right. And it's really well written. It's really you know, it really pulls me in. I feel like I'm there in Thailand with you. Um, so uh, really, really amazing job. Cheers, buddy. But you talk about what it was like going to, or what was going on at Raven Tour when Ben did Hubble. Um, even though it was 15 miles from you, it seemed like another world. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about that time and what you remember of Hubble first getting done? So that was 1990, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, and I, I wasn't in the scene then. So I, I was at Sheffield University and I'd moved to Sheffield to go to university, but really to go climbing because Sheffield was like the place to be. And I, I wasn't in any kind of performance zone or hanging with any of the dudes at all. I was very much a, like a traditional climber, a bit of a bumbly really. I'd be going out and climbing like five elevens maybe um all traditional my mates were climbing at a similar kind of level and we we just did not know anything about sport climbing like nothing at all i'd literally done no sport routes i didn't even know where raven's tour was so we didn't have any access to that kind of scene but it was in the, all the magazines it was in all the you know, it, the word was on the street you know people were talking about it and it was so exciting to be kind of slightly part of it because we were living in the same city but it was happening at a distance it was a bit like watching you know famous football players being amazing you know it was like wow look at those dudes wow they're just doing something totally cool but yeah we were not part of that scene so yeah that was to come like did hubble re-enter your sort of consciousness as you started to become a sport climber did it did it occur to you what that meant 
Yeah, so I, I became a sport. Cl- well, I wouldn't say I became like became a sport climber. Like, <laughs> right, right. Not like you just... put on a costume, but <laughs> <laughs> so, it was superhero costume. No, it just I started sport climbing, and I quite rapidly moved through the grades. So my first sport route was in about '93. Um, it was a seven C plus, and I red pointed it in a day. And then it took me a little while to sort of get into it. My first grade eight was in '95, and then by nineteen by '98 I'd climbed nine A plus. So it was it was pretty quick. And during those few years, at first Hubble was like this amazing hard route off to the side that was out of my league. Mm. And then gradually it was like, oh, do you know what? Maybe. Maybe I should look at that route. Maybe I should try it. Yeah. And I, I did have a little foray. I can't remember what, what year it was, but I remember looking at it, trying it, and thinking, oh, wow, that's too hard for me. Um, <laughs> maybe I'll come back to that another year. And it, it was definitely – it was so bouldery. It's so bouldery. It's, it's not my style, that level of bouldriness. So, so I kind of left it. But it was always there. It was always there. And it was like – the test mm. you know it was all right me doing nine a's and nine a pluses but if i hadn't climbed that route i hadn't really passed the tests and that kind of yeah it was it was on my mind yeah that's that's exciting those moments when you're you feel like you're building up to these mythological roots and you feel like you might be ready and and i actually get a lot of joy out of getting on those mythological routes and then saying, whoa, this thing is still leagues harder than I thought it would be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no. I mean, of all the routes in all the world, in all of history, that is one of the biggest routes. That is way, way up there in terms of, like, you know, its status. It's, it's really, like, one of the highest for sure. Yeah, no doubt. Uh Eventually, in your book, you talk about you sort of got absorbed into the scene and and you had to pinch yourself like I'm around all my heroes and and this is so strange. I can't believe I'm here. Uh, do you remember when you first met Ben or what the first conversation was like? <laughs> so I can remember the, the very first time that I ever saw Ben in the flesh was down the climbing wall, the local climbing wall called the Foundry in Sheffield. Mm-hmm. and. He, he didn't know me, and I, I, didn't, I didn't know him, obviously. And he passed by, and he, he caught my eye, and he, he said just something really trivial, like, hi there, how are you doing? And I, I just <laughs> I couldn't reply. I was just like, oh, totally like no words, and just legged it off, ran away like a school kid. <laughs> um, but I think later on down the line, I think we might have met at the crag when I was climbing a bit harder and didn't feel so stupid. And um, he was still, and it, 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 he still was then, and he still even is now. He still has like an aura. I still see him and regard him as a as a hero because he was for so many years. You know, right from the first time I heard about him in maybe about eighty four, somewhere like that, uh, up up until the mid nineties, he remained the guy that I really you know looked up to as the, the cutting edge of sport climbing in the world, really. Yeah. My friend Angie Payne, who is an incredible climber, especially if you give her small crimps on an overhanging wall, she she just looks like she is the best climber in the world at that terrain. And she came uh, home from Waco 
uh, a trip to Waco Tanks and had seen Ben there climbing. And she was telling me almost in hushed tones, like, I saw Ben Moon climb and the way he holds crimps and the way his footwork is always perfect. It's unbelievable. You know, she, she was just seeing him as this like larger than life, otherworldly character watching him climb. I think that's cool to be able to pick up on that. And that's, you know, one of the reasons he's a hero, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's other things about him, you know, like people have something about them and you can't really put your finger on it, but but Ben's that kind of guy, He, you know, when, when he enters the room, it kind of like fills up a bit more. You know, it's not just a normal person. Yeah. He's got something a bit more about him. He, you know, his, his appearance, his, he, he just fills a space with his uh, personality. And uh, yeah, he's, he's a dude for sure. Cool. Well, you added your own big mark to Raven Tour in 1998 with Mutation. And I think Sharma tried it and outright said he'd never do it. Uh, Magos has tried it. And then Will Bosey finally got the second ascent after 40 sessions. And he suggested an upgrade to 15A from 14D. And I think it's interesting that that puts you in a, a similar situation as Ben has found himself in the last few years, which is you would be one of the first people uh, possibly the second, if open air was the first 15A, um, to climb 15A. And it, either way, it means you did 15A before Sharma did biography. So I'm, I'm curious what your feeling is about that, like sort of rewriting of or correcting history um, that that you and Ben both sort of find yourself in these days. Um, I mean, in terms of rewriting history, yeah, whatever. I mean, I'm not, I'm not um, excited about that yeah. in any way. It's a kind of be a nice little tick, um, but yeah, it, it doesn't particularly bother me. The it was. I mean, I I always see climbing very much as a personal thing, and like it's mm -hmm. me versus whatever challenge I've decided to try. And the the grade is almost not so important. It's almost like what what the challenge ends up being. Yeah. You know, is it like a, a absolute total limit? Is it too hard? Was it too easy? And that was a it was a perfect challenge. Uh, yeah, whatever grade it settles at. I'm. I mean, it's so long ago as well. <laughs> it's ages ago. I mean, I guess it is quite cool to be one of the first to climb that grade. You know, fifteen A is a milestone, isn't it? It's like a magic grade. Yeah, totally. And even at 14D, you were in great company, you know, regardless. <laughs> so either way it goes, I think it's a feather in the cap for sure. And, I, you know, besides just the fact that maybe the grade isn't the thing that we should be focusing on there, I also think that the, you know, the inspiration that's created from this this group of climbers, not just one climber, like it's I can't attach the inspiration um, all to Wolfgang for claiming the first 14D, even though he didn't even grade it that, you know, someone else gave it that. But um, I can't attach all that inspiration to one person because there was Ben doing Hubble, there was Wolfgang doing Action Direct, there was Alexander Huber, you know, there were Fred Nicole doing Bain de Sang. There are all these all these climbers sort of flirting with this next level all at the same time. And for me, I think that's the, that's the important part as opposed to who did it first, 
Yeah, yeah. We can never really know if the grades are subjective. Who did it first, right? Yeah, I mean, and also like that. I think with that route, with with my route mutation, it it very much suited me. Um, very, very much. I mean, the, there was even talk that it it might be even a grade harder than what Will upgraded it to. Yeah. But if if that was the case, then it wasn't for me, right? Because it suited me, and it certainly suited my style. And it suited my strengths at the time. And uh, to be honest, if it is 15A, it probably wasn't 15A for me, if that makes sense. Mm, yeah, totally. Um, and I think if, when, when you reach like your cutting edge, you know, you're kind of looking to play to your strengths, really, aren't you? Yeah. And um, what might fit me very well might not fit somebody else so well. So, yeah, that's where the grades all start to become a little bit messy. Yep. Um, once you hit that that sort of cutting edge. Yeah, and I think we see that across all of these, you know, famous ascents from the '90s. You know, Hubble was very much Ben's, you know, powerful bouldery style. Um, Action Direct was Wolfgang's, you know, powerful pockety style, and then Alexander Huber doing the longer, more fitness style things. Um, so I think all of those climbers were finding the things that fit them really well. Absolutely, yeah. When you when you want to when you want your like limit problem, you you, you kind of want to find something that fits you, unless unless you're really like suffering. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, one of the things I find really interesting about Raventor is how the history sort of stacks up there. Um, you know, like Ron Fawcett did the Prowl, and then Moffat doing the direct start to create revelations, and then later Hubble meeting up with that. And your mutation comes off of a Moffat route evolution. So it's a little like climbing through different layers of climbing history. And I think that's really cool and really special and makes me want to visit Raventor just for that reason. Right. Well, <laughs> do come and visit. Um, it might not be, it's not Seus, so don't get your hopes yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> it's, I, uh, I, I've heard all of the like, it, you know, it's short and it's scrappy and it's slippery. And, you know, I've heard people compare it to a road cut, whether that's, you know, warranted or not. It's the history that I think seems so cool to me. Yeah. I mean, so there's no doubt it has got it's it's got a very um rich history it's a relatively short history i guess because it sort of started in probably yeah, sport climbing history yeah so it started like at the start of sport climbing so if we go back to like like the the early 80s and then by the time you reach i don't know like uh, 2008 or so it's starting to sort of there's not there's not much happening there now there's no like Right. There's, there's the odd thing. I think Will Bosey climbed a new 9A plus a couple of years ago. But, mm. but you know, there's not scope for new 9Cs and 9C pluses in the future. It's uh, it's kind of pretty much climbed out. Um, but, it, but it's a it's really good crag if you want to climb hard. It doesn't. It's not the best looker. Um, right. It hasn't got amazing long mega routes. But the style of climbing is intense. It's fingery. It's bouldery. You need good footwork. You need precision. If you can climb hard there, you can probably climb hard pretty much anywhere. Yeah, I think that's such a, it's such a cool monument to 
what those climbers were doing back in the in the 90s you know yeah i guess starting in the 80s with like body machine maybe that's one of the like markers yeah. of the beginning of raven tour history yep and you know and then moving on to um to mutation i don't know if that marks you know nearing the end of the history or not i don't know what up what went up after that yeah, I mean, it, it certainly it marks like sort of towards the end of the the um, the high quality routes. I mean, there's been some good bouldering developments there. I mean, the thing mm. with the crag is it, it really fits a, a sort of time and place. That sort of yeah. it, when sport climbing started out and the style of the hard route. So that was like pre the big mega tufa routes and the and the huge long routes. Right. It was it was all you know. Frank and Jury was part of it. The UK was part of it. You know, this was where, this was the style. It was short, it was intense, it was fingery, powerful. And um, yeah, Raventor fits the bill just right. We were kind of lucky to have that, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, we were kind of lucky. Yeah, that's a cool training ground to have. Um, a couple of years after Mutation, you did what was then famously known as the, the Kilnsey Project or Ben's Project. And you did it and called it Northern Lights. And it was basically Ben's last big project that he'd left unfinished after spending 120 days on it or something. And I think that sort of seems like a passing of the torch of sorts. Um, did it feel that way for you when you were doing it? Um, definitely didn't feel like it was passing of the torch. No, I, I definitely didn't get Ben's torch. <laughs> No way. No, Ben still <laughs> still remains. I, th I think one of the reasons why Ben didn't do it is he he was he, he put a lot of time and effort into it, and other yeah. things came along. Uh, life got in the way. He got really into bouldering. I think the bouldering wasn't really a thing before that. Mm. It, it wasn't something many people did, and he, he's naturally really good at bouldering. And bouldering kind of started, and he I think he just was like, wow this is my thing, bouldering, which it is, you know, he's such a good boulderer. So he kind of went off and bouldered a lot. I think he probably found it quite easy to leave that route um, and put it, put it on the back burner potentially because there was too much else to do. And when I climbed it, it was, uh, I mean, it was amazing. That was the start of it all really. Doing mutation was, was, a, was a big deal, but Northern Lights was a, a totally different league in terms of, um, me becoming like a uh, feeling like I was part of the sort of cutting edge, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Suddenly everyone's like, wow, you climbed this route. It's Ben's project. And I, I was a bit like, whoa, a bit kind of blown away by it all, really. And everybody wanted to know about it because that route was so famous already. It was already it had massive media attention. It had been graded. Everybody was waiting for Ben to do it. So to climb that just felt unreal, really. It was a bit of a, a, bit of a dream. Yeah. When you started trying it, was it, was it just an open project? Was it something that you went to Ben and said, do you mind if I try this? Do you know what? I can't remember. Um, I can't remember if I asked Ben. I think I might, might have asked Ben indirectly, but it was open because a few of the people had tried it as well. Malcolm Smith had been trying it. So the word on the street, it was definitely known that it was open. I think maybe somebody, I didn't actually know Ben or Ben's phone number. <laughs> I don't think I could have emailed him. Uh, but I think, I think I did. I think I indirectly asked him um, and he, he was like, yeah, yeah, go for it. I've, I've given up. I'm not interested anymore. 
Did you talk to him after? What was his response to it finally getting done? So I can't remember his response immediately after, but I have spoken to him loads about it in in the past. I mean, I know Ben reasonably well now. You know, I've been on holiday with him, and yeah, I can have a good a good laugh with him. Been partying with him plenty of times, and um, we've talked about it a lot, mainly since he started trying it again. So he had a second run at it. Uh, I don't know whether you knew that. Yeah, yeah. And he, he got even closer. He got even closer. He got mm. really close a couple of years ago. And I think he's um, let it go for the second time now, maybe thinking he might come back to it again. I'm not sure. But we talked about it extensively um, in, in the car on trips to up, up to the crag. And it was really interesting talking to him about it and, you know, you know the moves and the sequences and the training required and the motivation for it. Yeah, it was, it was cool. Yeah, I think one of the, one of the most interesting things about climbers at the top level is they're, they're not always like we might assume super protective of the things they're climbing on. Um, a lot of them just want to see these hard things get done. Um, so it's not as difficult to let it go to someone else as we might think it is. Um, we, you know, we hear a lot of grumbling and fighting about, you know, this is my route. You can't try it yet. Mm. Um, but it seems like at the the top level, that doesn't happen quite as much. I'd say it probably doesn't happen as much as people think. Um, it does definitely happen. And I also think that people tend to become more relaxed as they get older. True. And not so much getting older, but more becoming more relaxed about, first of all, where they're going with their own climbing mm-hmm. um, and just what, what they want out of climbing. So if I found a really amazing project now, I really wouldn't mind if somebody else did it first. I'm just absolutely not bothered. But I think I would have been a, a little bit miffed going back like 25 years. If yeah. if I'd been trying mutation and somebody else said, can I have a go at that? I would have been a bit like, oh, well, you know, I've tried it quite a lot and you know, I bolted it and cleaned it and I, I wouldn't mind doing the first ascent. But now I'd be like, yeah, crack on. Show me the moves. Show me, show me how to do it. I'd be pleased. Yeah, I sort of have the same feeling. When I was younger, if I found a thing I wanted to do first, or a crack climb or something, I would, I would keep it secret until I had done it. Um, and nowadays, if I find a boulder, I'm like sending it, sending its location to all of my friends and saying, "Hey, yeah. go, go try yeah. this," you know, and video it so I can see how you did it. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe we t- instead of a, a passing of the torch, maybe it's Ben used his torch to light your torch. Maybe that's what it is. Hey, that's that's a nice way of putting it. Yeah, he just yeah he just gave me like the step on the ladder. Yeah. Um, cool. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> All right. Um, skipping ahead a bit, after Northern Lights, you make a pact and you eventually do Hubble. So, tell me about your own personal battle or dance or conversations with Hubble. <laughs> Yeah, well, all of those things, battle, dance, conversation. I mean, I guess it started way back when it was first climbed, uh, 1990. It hit the headlines. Everyone was like, wow, this is just totally insane. It's like the the next level. There was so many pictures, and it just looked totally amazing. But it was like watching somebody go to the moon. It wasn't something that we thought, oh, let's have a go at that. It was something that some other amazing climber did. And then 
that that remained like that for quite a long time. And then I was climbing harder and harder things around the UK. And once I climbed into the sort of 8C, 8C plus kind of terrain, then it was right there. So Hubble was 8C plus at the time, and or graded 8C plus rather. And that started to become like, oh, well, maybe I should be looking to try this. So I can remember having the odd couple of goes on it interspersed by years, literally. I can't remember when I first went on it. I'm going to guess probably about 98. Um, in fact, you know what? I think I tried it just after I did mutation. Mm. Maybe the first time. Yeah, I think I did actually. Uh, and just thought, whoa, too hard. Yeah, can't do that. Maybe tried it a couple of years later and was like, oh, it's still too hard. And then maybe a few more years later, no, it's still too hard. I got to about <laughs> maybe 90, uh, 2006 or 2007. And I I remember trying it and doing some half-decent links on it and thinking, oh, maybe that could be become something i should get involved with and it was 2009 i was in i was in decent shape in 2009 i don't know why um relatively strong and it was that was just the year that i thought right i'm going to get stuck in now like all those other goals i'd had a little go and thought bit too hard but i think I'd, I'd the main difference was i'd learned i'd learned over the years the difference between how you feel on a, a longer sport route on your first mm. acquaintance and how you feel on a, on a boulder route. So on a long route, you might do all the moves first go, but you know this is going to take me 15 days, this route. So you're kind of looking for the same experience on a, a short boulder route. And when you do no moves, you think, <laughs> oh, it's impossible. That, like I can't even do any of the moves. But then so I've learned over the years, that doesn't mean you can't do it. You didn't do any moves, but, you know, how close were you to the moves? You know, can you make some progress? So it was more like that. So when I got involved in 2009, I think I might have managed some of the moves, and that was enough to hook me in and think, okay, okay, this is worth another day. And then I had another day, and then it was like, right, okay, time to get stuck in, mate. Like, let's go for it. Yeah, and you know, you said Ben was a a good boulder, and maybe he had that that innate ability just just built in that he understood the the process of trying a move that seems impossible, and then you know finding a little kernel of understanding in that move, and then building on that until you can eventually do the move, which is what makes these short, powerful sport routes work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you've totally hit it there. I mean, I think Hubble was the the one and only route where I've really got into the, the the micro gains. And I can remember going home on one of the days, don't know what day it was, maybe day five or something, super excited because I'd found that if I held one of the holes with like a little finger on rather than a little <laughs> finger off or maybe the other way around. I can't remember, but some like micro beta and it felt like massive progress. Yeah. And it was, <laughs> it was barely nothing really. But when you've got so many uh, or so few moves together, then huge gains are made by simply making these micro adjustments and it, it all adds up. Absolutely. There, there's one part of this that I, I see people, um, maybe make a mistake of quite often. And 
and it's an interesting part of it because it can go both ways. Uh, and I, I'm conscious of this when I'm making these podcasts is that I don't want to build these roots up to be so mythical that people won't try them. And, and I, I, we tend to do that in our heads quite often, or I do. And I've seen a lot of other people do it where they, they've romanticized this root up so much that now they can't get on it. Now it's too scary to get on. Um, was there any of that like romanticizing or putting Hubble up on this pedestal that, that you had to get past initially for you to get on it? I mean, yeah, I would say there definitely was some of that. Um, I, I wouldn't have gone on the route when there was many people at the crag for sure. Um, not because I felt like I was going to make a fool of myself. Um, maybe actually, maybe it was that, I don't know. It it just (laughs) felt like, um, it was too, it was a big deal. And I, I kind of didn't feel as though it was my place to get on it. It was definitely put up there as, as like, you know, wow, this is a cherished monument. And, um, only those that really have the right to go on it should even go on it at all. Yeah. Is it a similar thing to like Midnight Lightning in Camp 4 where if someone steps on, a crowd just automatically gathers to watch? Um, Yeah. I remember doing Midnight Lightning, actually. Yeah. Yeah, I remember doing it. Nobody was watching, fortunately. (laughs) Oh, you got lucky. (laughs) Yeah, I, I have to imagine that, you know, there's always the specter of, especially... Um, for you at that stage, you had already climbed harder things or, or things at least as hard, um, graded harder things. And there has to be this feeling of if they see me doing poorly on this, you know, all of these other things come into question. Like, yes, who does he think he is grading Northern Lights 9A? Yes. So I, I, that I, I I know for a fact that um, people had said after I climbed mutation and Northern Lights and um, Rain Shadow, people had said, "Yeah, I know, I know, Steve McClure's climbed these nine air routes, but he hasn't climbed Hubble, has he?" Mm. That was definitely <laughs> I'd heard that that on the street, and it, I, I don't know whether it spurred me on as such because my my answer to that was always. Should, should I feel like I needed to give an answer was it's just so not my style right. that it's going to feel like a whole lot harder. And, and I think it, that's true. It, it, but that definitely was a thing which I, I allowed that to become a motivator for myself. Yeah. It wasn't like a negative one. It was like, right, you know, let's, let's step it up. You know, this is a, a real challenge. Uh, let's embrace it and, and give it a proper go. Yeah, well, kudos to you because it very easily could have become this thing where you hear, oh, well, Steve hasn't done Hubble, has he? And you respond with, well, Ben didn't do the Kelsey project, did he? Uh, yeah, know, good point. It, it could have become this this pissing <laughs> yeah. match that it didn't need to become. Yeah, it could have been. <laughs> well, you, you mentioned Rain Shadow there and – Ben made news at 49 or almost 49 years old. I think he turned 49 a week later or something um, by climbing Rain Shadow. And that was 9A, um, his first thing graded 9A, maybe his second 9A. And that's your route. Um, 
how was that moment for you? It seems like such a cool, almost full circle moment of Ben coming back, you know, and, and, you know, reclaiming his spot up there, you know, relighting his own torch in sport climbing and, and on your route. I think that's very cool. Uh, it is actually. And do you know what? I've never thought of it like that. I've never, it never even crossed my mind that mm. Ben climbed Hubble and I, then I climbed it and then I climbed Rain Shadow and then Ben climbed it. That never, never crossed my mind. It was, it was a route that, uh, but, so I, I think maybe Rain Shadow didn't have the elevated position that Hubble had. Uh, certainly not in my mind. No, it was nowhere yeah. near as, didn't have the status at all. Um, perhaps because I, it was, I did it. I mean, Rain Shadow is a really, really good route. I mean, it's had a lot of repeats as well because it is so good. Um, but yeah, I didn't think about it like that. That's quite cool, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's a really neat moment. And as I've been researching the 90s and, you know, realizing the like interactions between these climbers and these routes and how they all sort of spurred each other on and motivated each other. Um, when I came to that story and made the connection um, that there had been this interesting full circle moment, it it felt a lot like the interactions between Ben and Trebu and Gulich and, you know, the uh, Le Ministrals coming over and doing, you know, uh, free soloing revelations and that spurring people on and just these interesting interactions. And this felt like a really a really nice one instead of a, you know, slightly, um, slightly meaner one. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, it's definitely, it's a nice, I like, I like the, uh, I like the storyline there. I think maybe the, the thing which is a little bit different is that, um, so I really associated Hubble with Ben. Those two things are, are like, sort of like, you know, they're connected and, um, totally part of the same thing whereas i think rain shadow stands almost alone without the first ascensionist mm. as such it doesn't ha- it doesn't belong so much to well not that not that any route belongs to anybody but right, the connection right. between the person that climbed it first and the the route itself isn't as strong because it's such a good route and it's such an amazing line people see it and they want to climb that route. Um, they don't think, oh, I want to climb Steve McClure's amazing rain shadow. It's just rain shadow. When Ben saw a, a guy called Jordan Boys on it, he was like, wow, that route's totally amazing. I want to try that route. I want to climb that route. And that's mm-hmm. what inspired him. It, I'm pretty sure it won't be, oh, there's a Steve McClure route that I want to try and do. He just saw the route and wanted to try and do it. So yeah, it's it's yeah. it's not so connected, which I think is is interesting. How some routes have a really strong connection to the first ascensionist, and others are just an amazing route that you want to try and do. Do you think mutation has that connection with you? It probably does, because of the style, and I think it's it's, it's just so my style. I mean, when 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 Will was trying it couple of years ago i had a little play on it just for old time's sake and i could do all the moves again um mm. the crossover move i found really hard but the upper wall i was fine on it and and will was like this is just so your style isn't it it's just completely <laughs> you 
Um, and I think that that it, it probably fits more in terms of like, oh, yeah, that is a Steve Root, whereas the other things are just, uh, you know, nature created these amazing lines. They don't belong to anybody. They're for everybody to try and do. That that makes it even more appropriate that it's at Raven Tour, yeah. <laughs> uh, which is sort of like the the sport climbing history museum in in the UK. <laughs> Yeah, well, we we go there often and polish the holes. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, um, Steve. What do you think Ben Moon means to UK climbing? You know, both both like then and now in 2023, he's sort of reinvented himself multiple times, um, and I don't know that he's ever lost relevance to to the current climbing scene. Um, so I'm curious what what you think he means to UK climbing. Yeah, I mean, I think all all of all top climbers have like a, a sort of place in history, don't they? And yeah. some of them it's a, a relatively short spot, and they kind of drop off the radar, and, and that's a, that's a shame to some extent. Yeah, we don't tend to be able to look back very far, and and the kids today will not remember or not be even interested in in maybe the Jerry Moffat era. Right. But I think the way that Ben has managed to, like you say, reinvent himself and move through lots of different areas of the sport, you know, he's got his clothing business, uh, he stayed super fit and healthy and strong and had influence. I think he is he's probably one of the, the absolute top of the, of the league in terms of um, history in, in the sport. He is the person that I think I relate to most in terms of legend. Mm. If somebody said, okay, who, who is your number one climbing legend ever in the UK? He, he would be my first choice. So there wouldn't be any question about, you know, who it should be. He's, he's top of the list. Uh, Jerry, a close second. Um, but yeah, Ben wins. Yeah. I love that. I think, you're you're totally right that the the ones who seem to find a way to remain a part of the community and sort of in our our consciousness um, tend to be the ones that that get remembered and it it just so happens that the people like like Ben who who made a massive impact um, in the nineties and Fred Nicole is similar, made a, a massive impact in the nineties and is still doing things, um, to, to help the community along and still showing up, even though he's, he's very quiet and, you know, tends to kind of lurk in the shadows quietly back there. Um, those are the people that, that really, you know, stay larger than life forever. Yeah. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's very cool for me to hear that you're, you still sort of see Ben that way. Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, we, yeah. E even now, even though um, we've climbed hard routes, potentially I've climbed even harder routes than he has. I, when I'm hanging with Ben, I'm still thinking, wow, Ben Moon here, flipping heck. Yeah. <laughs> what a dude. Still can't help myself but think that. Yeah, I love that. Well, Steve, uh, I know you've got it's things to get to, uh, picking your kids up, and I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to chat for dealing with my raspy voice that's about to go 
And as an aging climber myself, I'm, I'm 49 this year. Uh, thanks for continuing to prove that, you know, us, us senior citizens can still climb hard. We can still get after it. Yeah. Um, well, absolutely. I mean, age will become a barrier at some point, but for a lot of people, it's, uh, I think we use it as an excuse to some extent. Um, yeah, I agree. Life gets in the way. And I think the key is to, to try and, you know, keep real to what you really want to do. And there's a lot of luck in there as well. I, I think I'm pretty lucky. I don't have to sit behind a desk five days a week, um, which is great. Although I do do quite a lot of route setting, which is equally as knackering. Um, but, but no, you've, you've just got to, you know, you, you've got to roll with it and make the best of it. And, you know, sometimes you get lucky. Sometimes things roll, Sometimes things go your way, um, regardless of the age. In fact, talking of um, getting lucky uh, and on the Hubble theme, I was thinking earlier, like, the time that I did it, the day I did Hubble, I totally didn't expect to do it. And I, I so yeah. didn't expect to do it that I, I didn't even have any quick draws in at the top. So I yeah. hanging on the hole halfway back to get somebody right. to throw up some quick draws. So I was <laughs> I was busy hanging there, catching these draws as they were getting chucked up. And like I say, you you, you know you never know. You've you've got to just uh, make make it happen. Uh, you make your own luck to a certain extent, but yeah, go out there and make it. One, two. All right, Written in Stone is produced by me, Chris Hampton, with help from Riley Rush and Emily Holland for Plug Tone Audio, a group of the best, most impactful podcasts in the outdoor industry. At the link in your show notes, you'll find all the things you expect and probably some you don't, including links to Steve's book and a bunch of great videos of the ascents that we've talked about here. And look, this show is 100% rooted in the facts, but like Todd Skinner always said, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. If you love what you're hearing, give us those five stars and a glowing review and tell everyone you know at the crag, at the gym, follow the pod on your friends' phones and share it all over your social medias. And together, we can tell the stories of climbing's most important ascents one decade at a time. Secret Stoners, man, I feel like I'm getting to talk to you guys a lot this week. Um, that's two great conversations this week. And this one, I honestly didn't even expect it to happen. Like when I when I messaged Steve, um, it took him a minute to get back, you know, which is normal with climbers. They're out, they're doing things. Steve's got a family. And I just sort of wrote it off as it, you know, He's not going to get back, and that's fine because I had a great conversation with Buster. Uh, but then Steve got back, and and at the same time, I was reading his um, his book, Beyond Limits, and it's really fantastic. And in the beginning of this interview, when I was telling him that his book is my favorite of all the climber biographies and autobiographies that I've read for this – that's not an exaggeration. It's it's really 
well written. It's it's much more than the average. I did this, and then I did this, and then I did this. Climber story, um, so good. Definitely deserves a place on your bookshelf. So please check that out. And of course, if you uh, click it from our blog, we get a little bit of what you gave to Amazon. So, um, you know, win-win. We take money out of Jeff Bezos's pocket and we put it back into making cool climbing podcasts. Next week is actually one of the first episodes we made. Uh, I think it's the first episode of the season um, that Riley Rush wrote most of, and then she and I sort of uh, molded it together into what it is now. And it's one of the most famous ascents. I almost said sport climbing ascents, but that's not true. It's one of the most famous ascents, period, uh, of all time, one of the most lauded routes, most recognizable Roots. Everyone knows what the moves are like. All of you, every one of you listening who's been climbing more than a few years knows what the moves are like on this route. Um, it's actually kind of fascinating how much we know about this one route. There just aren't that many routes across the world that you know what the holds are like and you know what the moves are like. It's incredible. And the story is fantastic. Honestly, I just can't wait for you to hear it. And one more thing before I go here. Uh, if any of you stoners have any questions uh, as this season progresses, whether it's you know uh, about the making of, if it's about uh, the roots in question, uh, if you just want to know if something's true or if we stretched it a little bit, uh, feel free to ask. Uh, you can do that on the Instagrams. Uh, you can email me, chris at plugtoneaudio.com. Uh, you could also, if you're on Spotify, you can um, leave us a comment in that little box down below the episode where it asks you what you thought about the episode. Let us know in there. Um, and I will try to answer your questions right here in the Secret Stoners Club uh, roughly as I get them. So, all right, my voice has mostly recovered from uh, the, the shoddy state that it was in when I talked with Steve for this interview. So I've got some recording to do. All right, I'll see you guys next week. <laughs>